ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Pip Williams' first novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, came out just as COVID was hitting. And to the surprise of Pip and her publisher, it became an international bestseller. Pip's new novel, The Bookbinder of Jericho, is a companion to that book. It tells the story of women working in the bindery of the Oxford University Press during the First World War. Pip's love of stories and of books goes way back to her childhood, where if she wasn't reading, she was watching her Welsh dad revelling in the surf at Manly Beach. But Pip's path to becoming a writer was not straightforward. Along the way, there was a diagnosis of dyslexia, two woolly alpacas and a honey farm in Tuscany. Hi, Pip. Hello, Sarah. It's just a delight to be here. The Dictionary of of Lost Words was your first novel, as I say. But tell me about the first poem of yours that was published. (laughs) The first first thing I ever had published was a poem in Dolly magazine. I didn't even know Dolly had, I mean, as a Dolly reader, I can't recall the poetry section of Dolly. Oh, my goodness, Sarah, I'm shocked. (laughs) I was straight to Dolly Doctor. I was missing all of this literary greatness that was there at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, well, I would also go straight to Dolly Doctor and then I'd go straight to Poet's Corner. And Poet's Corner was, I think it was part of Dolly magazine right from the start. And I used to read it and I remember when I was 15 having an argument with my parents who wouldn't let me go out or they were going to let me out but I had to come home earlier than all my friends, something. Some outrage. Something, some outrage. And my way of uh, dealing with outrage right from when I was quite small was to write poetry about it. Um, and so I did. I wrote I wrote a poem called 15 Um <laughs> Very imaginative, I know, and it rhymed. It can rhymed you remember as well. any of it? I'm ashamed to say I can. Can you um, please share it? <laughs> okay, I'm so glad no one can see me blushing. Um, so it starts 15 is an age of just in between. No immature habits should ever be seen. No alcohol served at your table at night. Don't act like a child. You're in people's sight, etc., etc., etc. I think it stands up. Pip Williams, well done. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it's going to win any awards, um, but it was published, which, you know, it was the first time I'd ever sent anything off to be published because, honestly, who does that when they're 15 and um, the idea of being a writer isn't actually something your vocational guidance teacher ever talks to you about. But it was one of those kind of just passionate, you know, reactive things that I did. And the fact it got published was extraordinary and amazing. Even heard from a friend who'd moved to Victoria that they studied it in class. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. You, All those years ago. Wow, you were on um, the syllabus with, with Dolly's well, 15. I'm not sure. The, yeah, I was on one classroom <laughs> syllabus. How and did your family react? I suspect they were really proud, hmm. but it's one of those things that I don't I don't recall. I don't recall any big fuss being made about it. I, I almost don't recall me being excited about it. I just, I was talking to a friend about this who uh, reminded me that I've always wanted to be a writer and that I used to talk about it all the time and that I was thrilled when the poem got in Dolly magazine. And it's so interesting because for me, when I was a child, writing was really um, just kind of like breathing in a way. I didn't do it for public consumption. I just did it for myself, which I think is what a lot of children do with any creativity. They just do it as a form of expression. I can't even remember sending this poem off to Dolly magazine with any great ambitions of becoming a writer. I just did it because I enjoyed reading Poets Corner. (laughs) So you were always reading and writing, but were these things that came easily to you as a kid? No. Um, it's it's one of those ironies. Uh, I have dyslexia and so reading and writing were always something that were, were difficult in that they were slow. Um, I was a very messy, untidy writer. Uh, I couldn't read very fast at all. 
But when you're a child, you're not comparing yourself to anybody. And so that slowness um, wasn't really apparent until I was older. And, you know, because it didn't matter that it took me a week to read a book that it might take someone else a day and a Mm. half uh, because I was just enjoying it. I read every single word. (laughs) I still do. I cannot I cannot read any faster um, silently than I do aloud. In fact, I probably read a little faster if I read aloud uh, than I do reading silently. And in terms of that diagnosis, at what stage of your schooling did you get that diagnosis of dyslexia? Yeah, so it wasn't until I was 15 or 16. And so I, I had this conundrum at school, really, that I was quite verbal and so, um, and I did relatively well at school, relatively. I wasn't the top of the class by any stretch, but I was very verbal. And it was my, my parents constantly had the same discussion with teachers at parent-teacher nights that, you know, she seems to understand, but then she doesn't apply herself in writing. And it wasn't until I was about 15 and um, in year 11 and my English teacher said to my parents, I think she's dyslexic. And it's not a term my parents had ever heard. This is the 19, early 1980s. It's not a term that was really used very often. They had only just introduced a kind of remedial reading and spelling program at the school and they put me into that. But it was full of year seven kids and I was in year 11 and it just didn't work because they were working with the curriculum. And, of course, I was beyond the year seven curriculum And so my year 11 teacher decided that the best option would be to combine oral and written tests in class. And it was just kind of fantastic. And so she would sit me, when the rest of the class were doing a written test, she would sit with me after we'd done it and ask me to talk through what I'd, you know, what I'd tried to to write. Because often I was a very slow writer as well. And so often I just wouldn't get down all the things in my head. What a responsive choice from that teacher. It was. And we all, you know, so many people have stories of teachers that have recognised something in them. In this case, she she didn't recognise that one day I might be a writer, nothing like that. She just recognised that I was enthusiastic about um, what I was learning and she was my English teacher uh, and that there was a disparity between my written work and my verbal understanding. And her name was Mrs Lawrence and, you know, I, I, I love mentioning her because she died a few years later and so I was never able to, in a way, thank her or let her know kind of how I turned out. Well, as you say, this term was newly being used and it did have stigma around it, I think, at that period. Did it feel for you that this was a a kind of a burden to get this term applied to you or how did you relate to it at that age? The term itself didn't bother me in any way because it it was still a kind of unknown term. The stigma I might have had with my dyslexia really came in class when we would be doing, you know, spelling tests or I would be be held back at recess because of the numerous spelling errors in my written work. And then I'd have to write out every word I'd spelt wrong 10 times, which would take up my entire recess. And and then, of course, I'd do my list of 10, uh, you know, repetitive words and they would be spelt three different ways within the list, which my teachers would just tear their hair out. They just couldn't understand how I couldn't even copy from the the word. Were you frustrated at yourself? Do you remember? It's interesting. My parents were excellent. They were so interested in the ideas and the creativity behind whatever I did. So whenever I wrote anything, when I wrote that poem, uh, for instance, even though I was still really angry with them, of course, I showed it to them. um, and, And they would read it and simply engage with the rhythm and the rhyme and the and the creativity. At that point, they wouldn't focus on the spelling or the messy writing or anything like that. And I think that that was key to me continuing to write as a form of expression because I was getting positive feedback whenever I gave something to my parents and I had a number of teachers, particularly Mrs Lawrence, who did the same thing. They focused on what I was using the language for, not the detail of the spelling and and so on. And I 
I had a few teachers who did not do that. I had a few teachers who would quite honestly just shame me in front of the entire class. So I, I have a really strong memory um, of doing a spelling test and we all did the spelling test. Then we had to pass our paper to someone else in the class who marked it as she called out the, you know, she spelt the words for us and then we would mark each other's. And then she would ask us to call out the mark that the person mm. had got that we'd marked, that we'd ticked. And the the girl who had mine, and she's still one of my closest friends, her name's Vanessa, and she refused to call out my mark in public. She wanted to go up to the teacher and just <laughs> just show her my humiliation because I got minus 20 in a spelling test because we got marks taken off for everything we got wrong. <laughs> so I was in the negative. And she was, you know, even at that, at, in year seven, she had the presence of mm. mind not to humiliate me, but the teacher didn't. And it's such a strong memory and I'm still really good friends with her and she now works in literacy. But uh, even then she had the presence of mind not to humiliate me and we weren't great friends then. It was just a kindness. It's interesting though, Pip, I can imagine for someone else having those kinds of experiences of feeling shame or just the slog of reading and writing, you might have fallen out of love with books and, and writing. Was there ever a moment where you teetered around whether this was something you wanted to keep as closely in your life as, as it was? Writing for me wasn't a, wasn't for public consumption. If you put the Dolly magazine poem to one side, that was really the only time I put it out there. For me, writing was the sort of thing I did in a diary. It's the sort of thing I might do in a birthday card. And I'm I'm an introvert. I was a very quiet, shy child, and books were an escape. Throughout my primary school years in particular and early high school, I had a my best friend, Kelly Cochran. Um, she, she and I would go to each other's houses all the time and take books and we would sit and read for hours on end and then we'd go home. That's all we did. <laughs> that sounds like it the was... best play date ever. <laughs> so, I wish yeah, I'd known you and Kelly. That's great. <laughs> Most people are very glad they weren't part of that little group. <laughs> it's extremely boring. Um, but it was, you know, it's the some, it was the thing that we loved doing most. I don't know if we even talked about the books. I think we did sometimes exchange them so that, you know, we could share in each other's reading pleasure. But, yeah, I, I just adored reading. It was an escape. And I had, I think I was quite imaginative. So I really loved escaping into an imagined world. Yeah. As an adult, Pip, how do you see your dyslexic brain now and the way that you think and read and write as a consequence of the way your brain works with words? I wouldn't swap it for anything. You know, there's a lot of frustrations with having a dyslexic brain. And I should say my dyslexia is probably, you know, mild to moderate rather than moderate to severe. But Whatever frustrations I have and other people have with, with my dyslexia, it is outweighed by what I think are the benefits of having a dyslexic brain. And some of those benefits that I can identify myself at least are an ability to see the big picture and to make connections between disparate bits of information where other people might not see those connections. So, Dyslexic brains, I think, are quite good problem-solving brains. Uh, they're quite good at lateral thinking. You know, whether that's because of the structure of the brain, whether it's because of the thing that kind of creates the dyslexia also creates these, I think, strengths, whether it's that or whether it's a compensatory mechanism, I'm not sure. But I find that in my professional life... I was a, a social scientist, so I spent I have spent my whole professional life trying to solve problems. You know, doing research is a actually highly creative pursuit and you're constantly trying to see how different bits of information work together and what they mean. And it's not so different to writing novels, actually. Putting a book together 
you know, requires a certain type of problem-solving <laughs> capacity, which I think my dyslexic brain benefits. I think it helps in that exercise. So, yeah, I wouldn't swap it for anything. Your mum had her own interesting experience with the English language. What was her first language? Yeah, my mum was born in Brazil and her first language is Portuguese. Even though she was born to, I suppose, British parents, her mother was also, I think, born in Brazil, but from British parents. They lived in Belém, which is near the mouth of the Amazon. And in Brazil at that time, we're talking about the 1940s, 50s, really society was divided into rich and poor. There wasn't really a middle class. And if you were wealthy, it was beholden upon you really to create as much employment for the local people as possible. And so mum was surrounded by local Portuguese-speaking people. They cooked, they cleaned. Mum went to the local primary school uh, where everyone spoke Portuguese. And so her first language is Portuguese, even though her parents spoke English. Would she have spoken Portuguese with them? Or what, what might that have meant for the way they communicated with one another? Yes, and this sounds so strange and it's hard to believe it happens, but I have spoken to other people who have had this experience as well. So mum spoke Portuguese and so did her sisters and her parents spoke English and they could understand each other, but they couldn't speak each other's language. <laughs> it, it is so strange and I, I have questioned mum about it so much and for her it's just like, well, yeah, no, that's just how it was. And I remember doing a book club with a bunch of Indian women talking about the Dictionary of Lost Words, actually, and talking about the relationship between two of the characters. The main character, Esme, is often looked after by a servant, Lizzie. And this was actually something that was familiar to these Indian women who had nannies that looked after their children. And one of the women said to me, I have a, a woman who looks after my son and I couldn't speak his language until he started school because he spoke the language of his nanny. And it was the same situation that my mum had grown up in. And I was dumbfounded because I didn't think that that still existed, that that kind of relationship might still exist. But of course it does in different parts of the world. So does your mother still speak Portuguese? What happened with her and language as she got older? She doesn't. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that as a child you don't think about, but as an, as an adult, I came to regret that it just takes one generation for a language to be lost. So mum doesn't speak Portuguese anymore because when she was nine years old, uh, she was sent to boarding school in the UK. So she was put on a ship with her 11-year-old sister and they were sent to boarding school. And when she arrived at boarding school, she was separated from her sister, the only other person who spoke Portuguese, and just put in the dormitory with her age group. She didn't speak any English, but she quickly learnt to. And she remembers the moment, you know, when she started dreaming in <laughs> English. And that's when, you know, the switch was complete, I think. What about your father, Pip? Did he have an exotic childhood like that too? <laughs> I'm not sure. Would you call living in a, a coal mining town in Wales exotic? <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> My dad was born during the Blitz, actually, in Portsmouth, England, uh, which is, just happens to be where, where his mother was at the time. His father had already gone off to war. As soon as he was born, they were evacuated back to Wales, which is where his, his family, extended family, were. Yeah, so not, not particularly exotic. <laughs> so as, as a young Welshman, what was his obsession as a teenager and young man? Oh, Dad has had a series of, of obsessions throughout his life. He was obsessed with uh, fishing and he used to fish at any opportunity. He was actually a beautiful singer. I mean, it's such a cliche, really, but he was such a good singer. Um, when he was older, they moved to Bath and he became the head choir boy at Bath Abbey. So a beautiful, beautiful pre-adolescent voice. I think today Dad would have been diagnosed with ADHD. He was constantly absconding from school to the point where one school actually said to his mother, 
we can't keep him here because we can't keep him in the grounds. He wasn't naughty, but he was very kind of absent-minded and, and a bit obsessed. And apparently he had been found walking along a street away from the school reading a book um, <laughs> while he beautiful. walked. beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful, isn't it? But he's so absent-minded that he didn't realise he'd left the school. Well, how did he discover surfing, Pip, if this is the part of the world that he's living in? How does surfing come into the picture? Honestly, I don't know how that started. But, yeah, so that was the next obsession. As he grew older, he just sort of added obsessions. He never gave up fishing. That was something he always loved. I think he must have just met some friends who were also into surfing, but it became an obsession. And so he and his mates would go down to Cornwall to surf on weekends or whenever it was possible. So back then he uh, used to surf on a longboard. They're probably twice the height of the of the surfer. And once he'd met my mum and once they were married, they tell this story of dad building a, a longboard in their bedsits. So they were quite poor <laughs> and, and they lived in a tiny little bedsit and the longboard <laughs> took up most of the room and it took months apparently to make and then finally they took it with their, their best friends down to Cornwall and he went out into the surf and, and caught a wave and it immediately broke in half. Oh, so, no. <laughs> so months and months of work oh, and, and anticipation, uh, yeah, <laughs> and then finally the moment comes and, yeah, crash. <laughs> oh, no. So was it surf that, that lured your family to Australia then? It was, yeah. Uh, These friends that mum and dad had, all four of them would talk about moving somewhere where surfing was much more of a thing, (laughs) not quite so freezing cold (laughs) to get in the water. And his friends were dead set on moving to South Africa. But yeah, dad couldn't abide with apartheid. So they, they didn't follow their friends to South Africa. Instead, they decided to move to Maroochydore. In so, Queensland. So how did that transition from England to the subtropics go for your family? <laughs> well, you've got to imagine a young family. So my sister was just one year old and I was three and mum and dad were in their 20s and they're moving from Wales. So uh, we lived in Aberdeer, which is sort of South Wales, not far from Cardiff. And they're moving from this dreary, cold <laughs> coal mining town, to Maroochydore on the Sunshine Coast. <laughs> it felt like they and, stepped into a postcard. Uh, yeah, a postcard and a, and a sauna. <laughs> you know, when we landed in Maroochydore, the first job Dad had was in the cane fields. We were not designed for the Queensland heat. Uh, we stayed there for, I think, about nine months before the heat got too much. And then I, I was only young, but I remember being packed into the back of an old car that mum and dad had bought. And, you know, back in the 70s when basically seatbelts didn't exist and because we were moving our entire lives, they'd packed the car with all the bedding and so the back of the car was just one big huge platform of bedding and I remember just lying on it and watching the world go by through through the window, you know, upside down. I remember the stars even. It's a funny thing what you remember as a child but I do remember the trip from Maroochydore down to, down to Sydney but Dad was in heaven. How often was your dad at the beach then when you were growing up? Dad spent every spare moment in the surf. So we moved to a flat right opposite Manly Beach. It doesn't exist anymore. It was derelict when we moved in (laughs) and has since been demolished. But it was immediately across the road from Manly Beach. And so he would surf before work. Uh, He would surf after work. He would surf when the beach was closed. I remember standing on the beach with my mum and my sister crying uh, one day because the beach was closed because of dangerous surf and Dad decided that was perfect, (laughs) perfect for him. And, I, yeah, I do remember being really frightened for Mm. him because it was wild and we'd stand there just waiting for him to come in. On the weekends, you know, Mum always cleaned the house on a Saturday morning and insisted that Dad 
deal with us no matter. He, she didn't care what he did with us, but we were his responsibility on Saturdays. And he would take us down to the beach and leave us on towels uh, and then go into the surf and um, And you just and sit let there? Us, yeah, we were supposed to sit there. We were supposed to just stay still and not not go anywhere. But we would, of course, pick the towel up and, and wrap it around our shoulders and run around the beach pretending we were superheroes or whatever we did. And then he'd come back and he wasn't one to get flustered, almost never. He was a very zen human being. But occasionally he would get flustered because he would have buried the keys <laughs> under the towel <laughs> that we had then used as our superhero cape. And so we might spend an hour digging around trying to figure out where the keys were. And, you know, that's that was the way of him. You know, I just... I, I'm so grateful for both my parents um, and I'm so grateful to the kind of man my dad was. He died recently and for whatever reason I've had occasion to talk about him. It's, it was only in August that he died and I've had many occasions where I've had the privilege of remembering him and talking about him and it's so wonderful and comforting to remember him because he was such a good man and I'm so grateful for, you know, I'm so grateful for him taking me down to the beach and just leaving me there and trusting I'll be okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful for um, him including us in everything that he was interested in mm. and always being interested in what, you know, made us excited. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Pip, you grew up by the ocean at Manly and at first that's where you lived with your partner, Shannon, and your kids. Why did you leave? Yeah, so we, uh, my partner is from Clontarf in Sydney. He grew up there. Uh, and so he went to the brother school, Balgala Boys, and I went to McKellar Girls. They were state schools. And so we knew each other from about the age of 16, 17, and ended up getting together and living together in Fairlight, which is where we had our children. They were both born in our house in Fairlight. Uh, but Shannon in particular had always dreamed of growing his own food. So while we had this tiny little semi-detached place in Fairlight with a backyard no bigger than someone's uh, an ordinary lounge room, it was quite relatively small, and Shannon somehow managed to grow quite a lot of food <laughs> in that backyard, but also in the tiny patch that we had in front of the house. We had a lemon tree and a couple of basil bushes and things like that. But his dream really was to be able to grow far more food than that, to have a, a kind of permaculture garden. And so when the boys were quite young, Aidan was four, I think, and Riley was less than 18 months we moved to the Adelaide Hills. So we sold everything and, and moved to the Adelaide Hills. How did your little boys take to this change in the environment in swapping the, the sea for the, for the farm? Well, they, was, they were so young. They loved it. You know, we have five acres in the Adelaide Hills and it was pretty plain, you know, pretty a blank slate essentially when we arrived. And Shannon immediately, he did a permaculture course um, and immediately started designing our garden. And, you know, the boys were just always around us. So as we're digging, they'd be digging. When we started to plant things, they would help. Uh, Riley, who was much smaller, was more likely to pull seedlings out of the ground um, <laughs> than put them in. When they were little, they would eat food straight from the garden, dirt and all, um, in Riley's case, when he was little. They could kick a ball around without it ever going over someone else's fence. So we were choosing between this sort of seaside existence and a tree change, but we were really determined to 
try and live a little bit more gently on the earth and to grow our own food. We we got our packers so that I could. Okay, everyone's gonna. I feel so embarrassed saying this. Why? So why, I could why? spin my own fleece. <laughs> and, because I feel like um, having done it and moved on, <laughs> I know what it is I sound like. So how far into the spinning your own fleece journey did you get, Pip? So we got two alpacas, uh, Pie and Ravi. I named them after characters from books, of course, from the life of Pie. So Pie and Ravi, beautiful alpacas. One was One was a white alpaca and the other was chocolate brown. And... We planted fruit trees. We got chooks. The spinning lasted for about three years. So I had about three years worth of fleece that I would card and I would spin and then I would knit into dreadful garments because as much as I wanted to do this, I wasn't actually very good at any part of the process. So the the, the yarn was very bobbly. Uh, and not very smooth, and the beanies and the jumpers were all a little misshapen. Um, <laughs> were and by your the family time... wearing them, or what? Who were the recipients of these well, items? Yeah. Well, this is the thing. By the time I actually got around to knitting a beanie, the kids had grown up a little bit, and and they and they hadn't been enrolled in the Steiner School, <laughs> the local Steiner School, which would have made it all okay because they would have fitted right in. They were just at the local public school and they just wanted a port power beanie. They didn't <laughs> they did not want mum's homespun hand, alpaca. Homespun, hand-dyed, bobbly little alpaca beanie. And so I gave them to friends with younger children who didn't know better and <laughs> So the idea was to grow your own food, perhaps live more simply, which all mm. sounds very delightful and, and, and kind of wonderful. And maybe that's what was happening for your partner, for Shannon. How was it for you? How were you finding yourself in this new environment? Were, were you the sort of woman that this was working well for? I think I was a bit like the yarn that I was spinning. I was a bit bobbly and misshapen. <laughs> and didn't quite know how I fitted into this this dream. Though I have to say that understanding didn't come until a little bit later. I was initially well and truly um, a participant in in this adventure. I absolutely loved the idea of growing our own food, spinning my own yarn, making my own clothes. It was it was one of those dreams. It's like a postcard of a beautiful place. But once you arrive, occasionally, that beautiful place, uh, the weather isn't always as perfect as it is on the postcard, if you, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. you know. And we found ourselves, essentially, we brought a lot of the things we thought we were leaving behind. So big jobs, time pressure, um, stress, we thought we might leave them in Sydney, but in fact, we brought it all with us and then we added a farm. <laughs> and so the tree change wasn't as graceful as it often looks in uh, magazines, you know, Saturday magazines <laughs> and and on television programs about the good life. It, it was a lot more difficult than that. And that's partly because we didn't know what we were doing. We were... we. Both of us had grown up on the beach. I'd grown up in an apartment and we we didn't know what we were doing. Shannon was very capable and he did his best, but even so we planted an orchard and just didn't get around to bottling all the fruit so the fruit just falls from the tree and rots. And that's, I suppose, a bit of a metaphor <laughs> for for what was going on. Uh, we, we invested in chickens but we couldn't keep the foxes out of the chookyard and so so many chickens died because of fox raids, which is, you know, really very distressing. The first time you sort of think, oh, wow, that's a lesson, but the second and third time you feel like you've, your duty of care, you, you have a duty of care and you feel like you've failed a living being when when foxes get them and you kind of know why they're, getting the chickens and you haven't managed to keep the foxes away. It's devastating. And so, you know, 
I was spinning the I was spinning some wool, but not all of it. <laughs> and so piles and piles of alpaca fleece started to pile up in the garage. Uh, and become the home for vermin. Um, it's, it sounds great, doesn't it? You love the good life. It's excellent. And then, and also the other thing was, you know, we started to accumulate basically all of the accoutrements of the good life. So the the um, the kettle that you preserve fruit in. We had this beautiful. Someone gave us this wonderful old kettle that you can um, put. You know, the glass jars that preserve fruit. Um, we had. All of that. We had the fleece, the spinning wheel, the carter, the, you know, I had a loom. Um, all of this stuff, we'd use it for a little while and then run out of time, just like we did when we were in Sydney. Mm. And that's partly because when we moved from Sydney, I brought a, I was doing a degree. I was in the middle of my PhD, actually. Suddenly I was busier than I'd ever been and it just wasn't, it wasn't working. <laughs> Why did you take off to Italy, the four of you? <laughs> See above. <laughs> See all of the above. Because it wasn't working, because we realised uh, we didn't know how to do this. And so we decided what we needed was work experience. We needed to live and work with people who had been doing this for a while and see how they did it. Uh, so I had actually finished my degree by then and had been working for a while um, at the Centre for Work and Life, actually, with now Senator Barbara Pocock. Um, so I worked there for a number of years, <laughs> ironically, studying yourself work-life. As, as, well, as work case life study balance. number one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so that's what we did. We, we, we looked at different types of jobs, women's work, uh, low-paid work, and how generally people can integrate work and life. And the irony being that I was I was sort of collapsing under the stress of trying to integrate my work and my life. So um, we decided that it wasn't working and that going to Italy would be a good idea. So we joined Willing Workers on Organic Farms. We became woofers, uh, essentially. And that's a program that's run all around the world and Essentially, you can go and live on a farm for whatever period of time and you work with the family that run that farm in exchange for food and board. And we contacted farms that uh, would accommodate an entire family, which is quite an ask, but there were a number of farms that would take whole families because the children don't work, So, but they still get fed <laughs> and housed, obviously. And so we found four different farms that we would visit while we were in Italy. And we were in Italy for about six months, moving around um, the country, working on farms and mm. learning about how to live essentially this life that we'd gone to Adelaide to live. I love that. You're doing the learning post the, the doing, but, you know, <laughs> a nice place to do learning, I'm imagining. I mean, it sounds bucolic farming in Italy, but what was the reality like? Well, it often was actually. And, and also just in terms of learning after you've um, given it a go, I think actually that's how a lot of us move on. We try something and fail and it's deciding that failure isn't an option that makes you continue trying. And so it was failing that probably was the best thing for us because it meant that we went searching for a way to do this thing that we were really invested in. And when we went to Italy, we worked on four different farms and they were so different from each other. Uh, the first farm was, you know, the, their main product was actually honey. They they produced honey. They had a lot of beehives, not just on their farm, but all around. It was actually an abandoned village in the um, hills of Tuscany. It was gorgeous. And they were slowly restoring a lot of the buildings in, in what was once, not even a village, a hamlet. It was lovely, but incredibly basic. We We stayed in what was called the wood house, and there was no water. There was, I think there was a, 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 a light bulb. There was no toilet. Um, it was very basic. And yet it was just perfect. The, the family were beautiful. They worked so hard. 
and we would work 10-hour days alongside them, knowing that they were working another couple of hours more than us. The thing about being a, a woofer, a worker on organic farms, is that at the end of the day, I don't have to do the paperwork or the admin. At the end of the day, I don't have to clean the house. I don't have to prepare meals for an entire family. There's nothing else to do except work alongside this family. They're the ones that carry all the stress. And so even though we were working quite hard, we really had left all the stress behind. And we were with the kids so much of the time, at that farm in particular, and we slept together, all four of us, every night. It was really special to connect to each other. We told the boys stories about themselves in the evening before bed, and it was extremely special. Other farms were more difficult for various reasons. Um, sometimes it was because we were expected to go and work kind of quite a long way from the kids, and we found ourselves stressing about what the kids were up to or whether they were lonely or or whatever. And, and so we had to make adjustments all the time, uh, which is what life is about and what travel is about. And Pico Iyer, who is a travel writer I really admire, he talks about travel, um, you know, when you start travelling, you travel to lose yourself. And I think that's so true. I think the thing about travelling when it really works is... It's when you lose yourself, when you sort of lose your bearings, you forget or have trouble remembering where you are in in time and space, but also in your mind and body. You're, you're taken somewhere else that's unfamiliar. Then what happens with travel is you journey towards an understanding of yourself. You find yourself. And I think that's what happened when we went to Italy. Um, we got lost, absolutely. I got particularly lost in terms of did I actually want this thing we journeyed all the way to Italy searching for? But in searching for it, I found something else that was more important. Well, what was that, Pip? What did that journey lead you to discover about yourself? Yeah, so we had gone looking for the good life, uh, the typical good life, the grow-your-own-food kind of good life that we'd gone to Adelaide for. That's what we thought we'd find and come home with um, from Italy. But in fact, the journey, staying on farms, observing and working alongside the women in particular who lived on these farms, gave me an understanding of what that kind of good life really looks and feels like. And it looks gorgeous. It feels hard, very, very, very hard, physically very hard, financially almost impossible. And I realised that I didn't, I didn't actually love digging in the dirt as much as I thought I would. Um, I loved eating food that was homegrown. I quite enjoyed cooking it. I didn't mind preserving it. But I, I realised it was actually Shannon's dream, the whole growing your own food thing. And I got closer and closer to understanding that my dream was something different. My dream actually was to write. And the closer I came to understanding that, I suppose the closer I also came to a, a sort of mini crisis because writing is a very time-consuming pursuit. And I was watching all of the women at the farms and realising that they were working to grow food from dawn till dusk. That's all they did. And at the end of the day, they were exhausted. And I couldn't imagine how I would fit writing into that kind of a life. And so when we came back from Italy, as incredible as that journey had been... I didn't come home with what I thought I'd come home with. I didn't come home with this new enthusiasm for growing our own food and trying to make our five acres work. I came home with a whole lot of doubts about everything we had invested in in the Adelaide Hills. And it took us some time to, I suppose, talk about how Shannon's dream and my dream could sit alongside each other. Have you been able to do that? Have you been able to find a way for that to work between you? 
We have. And in fact, it was as so many things are, all you have to do is talk about it and, and sometimes the solutions just present themselves. For Shannon, he's not at all interested in fitting me into his, you know, shoehorning me into something I'm not interested in. He's very interested in my happiness and my sense of pursuing something that's meaningful to me. And he recognised that me not writing was something that was actually becoming a problem for me. Um, And so he was the one that suggested I write about our trip to Italy, that I didn't need to be out in the garden pulling weeds. He could do that himself. And I could be inside contemplating what that journey to Italy had meant and what, in fact, I had brought home from from that journey. And out of that came my first book, which was a travel memoir called One Italian Summer. And it was, a lot of people say you don't write for therapy, but actually sometimes you do. <laughs> and <laughs> writing One Italian Summer for me was like taking the journey again, but paying far closer attention to my emotions, my responses to particularly watching the women on the farms that we were at. And when I really dug deep into that, the thing that was not attractive about that kind of life was how much time it took up. And I realised that that's because I wanted to spend my time dreaming up words. I, I wanted to spend that time writing. And those two activities were completely incompatible so you discovered that and between you as a as a couple and as a family, you fostered that and you had your first book and then now these two companion novels, The Dictionary of Lost Words and The Bookbinder of Jericho. What is it about that world of, of Oxford and of dictionaries and of book creation that grabbed you, do you think, Pip? Why of all the stories in the world that you could have dreamed up, why is that the world that took your imagination for your first novels? It's such a good question and I don't know that I can pinpoint an answer but what I can say is I am a curious person and if something piques my curiosity, I like to investigate. And what happened in terms of me being interested in writing about Oxford I simply read a book and, this, you know, read, it all comes back to reading in the end. I read a book by Simon Winchester called The Surgeon of Crowthorne, really interesting book about the relationship between the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary and one of the people who sent in slips of paper with examples of how words were used in text. By the end of that book, I had an understanding of how the dictionary had been put together And I suppose my social science brain was curious about how gendered the project must have been because for a word to be in the dictionary, it has to have been written down. And the Oxford English Dictionary was a project that was begun in the 1850s and finished in 1928. It was a Victorian-era project. At that time, the majority of books that you might find on a library bookshelf were written by men. The majority of science texts were written by men. The majority of journals of any kind or instruction manuals of any kind were written by men. And the people deciding on the definitions of these words were all men. It had to be a gendered text. And I was curious about whether that mattered or not. You know, do words mean different things to men and women? And if they do, is it possible that some words might be missing or some meanings might be missing from that first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary? So that was my area of curiosity. I first tried to sort of answer these questions just by Googling, just by sort of applying, I suppose, a little bit of my social science research skills to the question. I couldn't actually answer it that way. And I decided that the best way to explore the question was actually through fiction, by putting a little girl under the sorting table where all of the words of the English language are being defined and seeing how she 
responds to the words and how the words might respond to her. And, yeah, and when, when I did that little bit of research, I kept coming across this one little anecdote in the history books and that one anecdote was about a missing word. So one word, apparently, just one, <laughs> had gone missing from the Oxford English Dictionary and that word was bondmaid and bondmaid means slave girl. You know, that word in itself is just so provocative um, because it's about women, girls, and it's about women who are enslaved or bonded or don't have any agency. And so I, I suddenly realised that there was so much I could play with in terms of fiction. Um, and the fact that no one, un, no one knows how the word bondmaid went missing meant that I had, <laughs> I had carte blanche to make that up. Well, the story that you created out of that spark of curiosity has been embraced by people around the world. Where are you and your family off to this Saturday night, Pip? <laughs> We're off to the opening night of the play of the Dictionary of Lost Words at the Opera House in Sydney. How does that feel? Honestly, my 15-year-old <laughs> self <laughs> would never have thought that a poem in Dolly magazine <laughs> would eventually turn into me going to an opening night of a theatre production of a book I'd written. Um, it feels extraordinary. It feels surreal. It feels very humbling. I've never felt more humbled than when I went to the rehearsal room um, a number of weeks ago now. I went to the rehearsal room and Jonathan Oxlade, who has done the incredible set design, he took me on a tour, not just of the rehearsal room, but also of the room where they were building the set and then he took me in to meet the costume designers and the lighting designer. And I realised suddenly how much was being invested in this story that I had written in private and almost in secret, actually, because I, I, I wasn't sure whether I was able to write the Dictionary of Lost Words. I wasn't sure I was able to give that idea give it everything it needed. And so I wrote the story in a way in secret. I didn't tell my publishers about it. I just didn't know how it would turn out. And it was really humbling to see that so many people were investing time and energy and love and creativity and money into this story. Um, I feel quite separate from it, though, as well. I feel like this now is... Uh, a created work um, that belongs to other creative people. I often feel like I'm the parent of a talented child um, and the book is my talented child and my job really is to just make sure that people treat it kindly. Like, and once I find kind people, I'm very happy for, for them to take my book and, and care for it. Pip, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being my guest on Conversations. Oh, it's, it's such a pleasure, Sarah. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.